and welcome to Misinformation, a trivia podcast for ladies and gents who love cool trivia and sticking it to annoying teams at Pub Quiz. We're your hosts. I'm Lauren. And I'm Julia. Hey, Jewel. Hi, Lauren. <laughs> Hi. I barely made it here. Barely. Like <laughs> I had your house. Left, yes. I had not left my house in 72 hours because of the snow mm-hmm. and the cold. Mm-hmm. It was two degrees last night. Mm-hmm. And I finally bundled up, put my Russian hat on. Made of real capybara or whatever. Oh, God. What is it? No, what's the side <laughs> No, what's the side Um Sewer rats? No, the rat one, the the giant rat. Something tria. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Yes. Um, but, yeah, I got here, and then I couldn't find a parking spot, and then I finally, like, like drove over it piles mogled. of snow. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Nutria. That's oh. it. The Nutria. It's made of Nutria, which is a giant rat. It's not, though. I think it's fake. Um, so uh, I made it here because I'm committed to committed. the podcast, Julia. Yes. If you um, are lucky enough to to not live in <laughs> Rochester and you, and you didn't get 22 inches of snow this weekend. I mean, we weren't the only ones, man. Yeah. <laughs> it it was, was very cold in a lot of places. Yes. And I think upstate New York got the oh, yeah. brunt of it. Absolutely. Buffalo just got socked. Yeah. As per Yish. I, uh, it took me about two hours to dig my car out of its parking space. And then I refused to leave for the rest of the day <laughs> because I put two hours into digging out that parking space. Yeah. You can't so, let a bro just swoop in and take it. Nope. That's not how that works. Nope. And I was like, well, if I really truly had to leave, I would like put some lawn furniture in the <laughs> in the parking space. Yep. And then a guy at the car dealership today was like, I wouldn't pay attention to that. I'd just drive right over it. So <gasps> Rochester... Apparently, wow. does not respect the lawn chair <laughs> the parking chair space <laughs> hold the, the same way that Pittsburgh does. Well, you know, what you should do is just have Josh bundle up and spread eagle in the middle of the parking <laughs> spot because they're not going to hit a human person. Well. That's, well, that's a felony. <laughs> that's a felony no matter who you are. So there's that. I hope all of you are staying safe and warm oh. and that no one got hurt or cold, too cold or lost any limbs or digits. Um, because it's, it's bad out there, folks. It's real bad. Uh, <laughs> so on a, on a better Uplifting. note, we're going to, I'm going to get, we're going to get warm. We're okay. going to, we're going to warm ourselves all right. on the, on the warm fire, on the hot flames of knowledge. <laughs> and we're going to get, <laughs> Did you love that transition? Hot flames of knowledge? Yeah. Maybe that's the, what I'm going to call this one. Uh, so this is What Are You Some Kind of Rembrandt? Part four, Picasso's Hot Flames of Knowledge. Okay. You ready? All right. So Picasso, uh, spoiler alert, was a real asshole. Are any of them, are any of these guys nice guys? I think there's got to be some nice guys. I haven't done. Monet was maybe a nice guy. Monet was, you know what? Monet was a nice guy. Okay. He took on like six kids. He, uh, he like built a beautiful garden. He had a bunch of students. I'm going to say Monet was a nice guy. Okay. Picasso, not not. like in in an especially not nice way. So let's start. Picasso was born. Pablo Diego Jose Francisco de Paula Juan Nepomuceno Maria de los Remedios Cipriano de la Santísima Trinidad Ruiz y Picasso. I lost you at the fourth name okay. in that list. So without articles, of which there are six in his name, he has six articles in his name, Picasso was baptized with 14 names. <laughs> <laughs> Any particular reason? Uh, there are just various um, like saints and family names that they just tossed on him he was the only boy in his family so oh, i'm wondering if so that was every the boy's name he got every boy's name going back to like the wow. 1400s i bet I think. that did not fit too easily in like the church registry <laughs> no very tiny lettering some nun was just like jesus <laughs> literally jesus give me strength so he was born on October 25th, 1881 in the city of Malaga in the Andalusian region of Spain. He was the first child, so he was not only the only boy, he was the first child of Don Jose Ruiz y Blasco and Maria Picasso y Lopez. Uh, Picasso's family was of middle class and his father was a painter who specialized in naturalistic depictions of birds and other game. Uh, for most of his life, Ruiz was a professor of art at the, at the School of Crafts and a curator at the local museum. So an art background. 
Uh, Ruse's ancestors were minor aristocrats. Um, I'm going to tell you right now, it feels weird to talk because I haven't <laughs> talked much <laughs> in three days. I only had Steve to talk to. And sometimes, you know, when you're married to somebody, you don't need to talk all the time. Can't tell him every <laughs> thought that pops into his head. So this is strange. Anyway. Picasso showed a passion and a skill for drawing from an early age. According to his mother, his first words were peace, peace, which is a shortening of lapis, which is the Spanish word for pencil. Mm. So peace, Not peace. pizza. Not pizza, which I think were, was my first words. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, my first words were ocho nueve. And the reason being is because I watched a lot of Sesame Street. And, you know, they taught you how to count oh, yeah. in Spanish. Yeah. So my parents were like, why does she? Oh, I said ocho nueve because, you know, I was three. <laughs> <laughs> and my parents were like, why does she keep saying Ocho Guebe? And then my dad happened to be in the room one day while I was watching it uh, and counting. And he was like, oh my gosh, her first words are eight and nine in Spanish, a bastardized version of eight and nine. So <laughs> what I'm saying is I'm a genius. Okay. From the age of seven, <laughs> if you started talking when you were three. <laughs> <laughs> Let's go back to that part. <laughs> wow. What a sick burn. <laughs> I mean, I don't know how old I was, man. <laughs> Did you guys hear her? Did you hear her cut me deep like that? All right. Anyway, from the age of seven, Picasso was definitely talking and so was I. He received formal artistic training from his father in figure drawing and oil painting. Uh, Ruiz, his father, was a traditional academic artist and instructor who believed that proper training required disciplined copying of the masters and drawing the human body from plaster casts and live models. So he, as a young child, Picasso was drawing nude models. What? Is basically what I'm getting from oh this. Oh, my gosh. Uh, his son became preoccupied with art to the detriment of his classwork. Uh, on one occasion, uh, his father found his son painting over his unfinished sketch of a pigeon. Ooh. Observing the precision of his son's technique, an apocryphal story relates, Ruiz felt that the 13-year-old Picasso had surpassed him and vowed to give up painting. <laughs> Um, apparently, paintings by him exist from later years, so he okay. didn't actually do that. But there's this there's this definite aura of like Picasso was a young genius and he didn't take any like formal instruction. He just, everything like sprung out of him, like, like out of, um, like just out of nowhere because right. he was so amazing. So, uh, in 1895, Picasso was traumatized when his seven year old sister Conchita died of diphtheria. After her death, the family moved to Barcelona where Ruiz took a position at the School of Fine, Fine Arts. I won't say it like that uh, after this. Uh, <laughs> Picasso thrived in the city regarding it in times of sadness or nostalgia as his true home. Uh, Ruiz persuaded the officials at the academy to allow his son to take an entrance exam for the advanced class, and the process often took students a month, but Picasso completed it in a week, and the jury admitted him at just 13 years old. Of course. Of course, because he was amazing. Uh, as a student, Picasso lacked discipline, but made friendships that would affect him in later life. Did he... What name did he go by at that he point? He went by... Um, Just Pablo, Pablo Picasso? He he actually went by Pablo Ruiz y Picasso. Okay. Um, and that's how he signed his early work, his okay. juvenilia. Um, and then uh, after a certain point, he just signed it. Because Ruiz Picasso. was his dad's last name and Picasso was his mother's, mother's name. last name. Okay. Mm -hmm. And through Spanish tradition, you combine your father and your mother's name. Okay. And it's hyphenated now, I think. But at the time, it was you would use the article and. Okay. E. Why? Great. Thank you. Oh, yeah. Anytime. Um, so his father rented a small room for him close to home so he could work alone at 13. He lived alone when he was 13? Yeah, he, he let him, he well, rented I him an apartment. I mean, I guess the 19th century. And in, in some places, you would have already been married with I guess three so. children. So <laughs> that's true. This is with our 21st century eyeballs. I, I guess so, but still. <laughs> um, whatever. So he checked up on him numerous times a day, apparently. And judged his drawings, but the two argued frequently. <clears throat> so he was eventually sent to Madrid's Real Academy de Bellas Artes de San Fernando, which was the country's foremost art school. But he dropped out soon after enrollment because, again, school was not his bag. Uh, he learned the most from the Prado, anyway, and he would go and look at inspirational works from the likes of uh, Velázquez, Goya, and especially El Greco. Uh, I had a professor in grad school who was a real snobby snob, mm -hmm. and he r insisted on calling uh, Velasquez Velacroix, his uh, French name. Okay. But no one calls Knew him Velacroix. Yeah. So whenever he would talk about like, well, you know, the works of Velacroix, we would all look at each other like, 
who, who is he talking yeah. about? Like we people would open up their laptops and like Google Velacqua. Who the <laughs> hell is this? He was just a snob. Um, so elements such as uh, elongated limbs, arrested colors, and mystical visages are echoed in Picasso's later work. So he was obsessed with El Greco. Okay, El Greco, his work I find kind of gross, very like muddy Did brown. Did he do colors. the one that was Saturn or somebody eating some? Somebody oh, eating his Sa- son? Yeah, Saturn eating his son, consuming his son. I don't think that was El Greco, okay. but I can double, I'll double check on that. Um, Goya. Sorry. It was Goya who did uh, the Saturn consuming okay. his son. Another f- Spanish artist, mm-hmm. so you're not that far off. Um, El Greco did a lot of um, like heavy, dark brown or black outlines. The people's face, like he, uh, figural faces were very like hollowed out, very like emaciated looking. It's... It's a style that was like very distinctly El Greco. I don't find it particularly beautiful. We have a big one at the mag Hmm. um, in the fountain court. If you ever want to come take a look at it, it's um, Christ being pulled from the cross, like descending from the cross kind of thing. So um, uh, Picasso, his juvenilia is currently held by the Museo Picasso in Barcelona, which provides one of the most comprehensive records extent of any major artist's beginnings. So his mother was very obsessed with him and his father was already an artist. So they kept all of his stuff. Okay. They, they saw him as a genius, a young genius. And he was thought of at least like locally as a genius and was pretty well respected almost the entirety of his career, which also kind of gave him an arrogance. And- <laughs> Can you imagine... Having a 13-year-old kid that gets to live alone and then just is like painting nude bo- <laughs> nude models I don't all day know. long. Like he would, there is no way that kid would not turn out to be at least a little a screwed little up. Baby. Yeah, a little <laughs> screwed up. Um, so during 1893, the juvenile quality of his earliest works fell away. And by 1894, his career as a painter can be said to have begun. Okay. Uh, the academic realism apparently in the works of the mid 1890s is well displayed in a painting called the first communion, which is a large composition that depicts his sister Lola. Um, and in the same year at the age of 14, he painted portrait of aunt Pepa, which is a vigorous and dramatic portrait that Juan Eduardo Cirlo, who was a art critic Mm -hmm. had called without a doubt, one of the greatest in the whole history of Spanish painting at 14. Oh my gosh. So what's interesting, the reason why I mentioned these two is that First Communion and App Papa is the proof that Picasso was not just a bad painter. Like this idea of, you know, well, of course he's a modernist. He's making these crazy like faces where the eyeball is up on the forehead mm-hmm. and the mouth is down here is because he can't do anything else. Like he can't okay. paint in a classical sense. And in fact, these two paintings kind of prove that he was classically trained and talented in the way of traditional art. Mm-hmm. Um, so... By 1897, his realism began to show a symbolist influence. A symbolist influence. Uh, For example, in a series of landscape paintings rendered in non-naturalistic violet and green tones. So it's kind of the beginning of like Matisse. Okay. Like this idea of like... The different colors. The different colors that are rendering light and shadow in a three-dimensionality. And what some call his modernist period, which was only a year, 1899 to 1900, um, followed this kind of experimentation. So his exposure to the works of Rossetti, Steinlein, Toulouse-Lautrec, and Edvard Munch, uh, combined with his admiration for favorite old masters such as El Greco, as mentioned before, led Picasso to a personal version of modernism in his works of the period. For just one year. For just a single year, he just exploded onto this the scene. my year of modernism. Yep. His <laughs> Yes. Ooh, that's kind of beautiful. My year of modernism. So um, Picasso never really, I mean, he kind of started Cubism And he was involved in like the modernist period and like post-impressionism and all this stuff, but he never really subscribed to any of these like schools Mm -hmm. and kind of worked outside of them. So he had his own periods. Okay. Um, So I'm going to go through them very quickly and kind of like talk about what those those pieces of art look like during these time periods. So his blue period... Picasso's blue period was only three years, 1901 to 1904. They're characterized by somber paintings rendered in shades of blue and blue green, only occasionally warmed by other colors, uh, began either in Spain in early 1901 or in Paris in the second half of the year. He spent some time in both, um, Spain and in Paris, um, because Paris was where all the artists were. So, uh, many paintings of gaunt mothers with children, uh, date from the blue period during which Picasso divided his time between Barcelona and Paris and in his austere use of color and sometimes doleful subject matter, sex workers and beggars are frequent subjects. Picasso was influenced by a trip through Spain and by the suicide of his friend, Carlos Casemagas. So, um, Carlos, 
uh, was a good friend of his. And then he shot himself in a cafe in Paris at oh, like 20. Man. And um, apocryphally, Picasso was there, but he wasn't. He okay. was in Spain at the time. Um, and so this really affected him in a major way. And starting in autumn of 1901, he painted several posthumous portraits of Casimagas, mm. including one of him in his literal coffin called Carlos in his coffin, uh, culminating in the gloomy allegorical painting La Vie, uh, which is now in the Cleveland Museum of Art. And this period has a lot of strange, emaciated figures and somber tones. There's mm-hmm. a lot of people crying. These very like thin, with the long... guy with the guitar. Yes. So the the guy with the guitar who is in everybody's dorm room between like 1995 and 2005 is a very classical blue period Picasso picture. It's probably called the old man in the guitar. I'm pretty sure it's called the old man in the guitar. It's probably not the guy with the whatever. Well, either way. You guys know what we're talking about. Yeah. I'll post a picture, but you know who this is. Um, so the same mood pervades the well-known etching called the frugal repast, which depicts a blind man and a sighted woman, both emaciated, seating at a nearly bare table. So it's a lot of dark stuff. So mm. blindness is a recurrent theme in Picasso's works of the period. Uh, and it's also represented in the blind man's meal at the Metropolitan Museum of Art and in the portrait of Celestina. And needless to say, they didn't sell very well. Okay. People weren't like clamoring. Like, They're like, Ooh, I don't want to hang this in my house. Can you do something a little bit better? So Picasso was like, I got you. So next is the Rose period. Okay. So his Rose period was only two years, 1904 to 1906. Characterized by lighter tone and style, utilizing orange and pink colors. And featuring many circus people, acrobats, and harlequins known in France as saltimbanks. Saltimbank. Saltimbank. Mm-hmm. Uh, the harlequin, a comedic character usually depicted in checkered pattern clothing, became a personal symbol for Picasso. So this idea of like the creative fool, the the clown, mm-hmm. like the person kind of on the outskirts of society. Mm-hmm. He really like loved that. Also, not for nothing, Picasso was a hot, hot hottie. He was only like 5'4", but he was he had like these super intense eyes and was gorgeous. Like he was real good looking. I mean, you're not going to find him very attractive after all of this stuff, but (laughs) he was unequivocally a handsome dude. So at this point, Picasso meant Fernand uh, Olivier, a bohemian artist who became his mistress. Uh, He met her in Paris in 1904, and Olivier appears in many of his Rose period paintings, many of which are influenced by his relationship with her, in addition to his increased exposure to French painting. But let's talk about Fernand. Okay, so... Their relationship was tempestuous. Both were jealous lovers, and their fights often exploded into violence. Uh, nevertheless, Picasso painted over 60 portraits of her. When Picasso finally achieved success as an artist, he began to lose interest in Fernand, and she, as she reminded him of more difficult times. Oh, so he was like, ooh, you're starting to bum me out because you're reminding me of how when I was hungry and people didn't know who I was. Um, so he... Broke up with her uh, in 1912, and he left Olivier without a way to carry on living in the style to which she had become accustomed. Mm. So she had no legal right to expect anything from him since she was still technically married to her first husband. Okay. She she married like super young, like 16, and then she wanted to leave her husband, but she couldn't afford to get a divorce. So she just like ran away and changed her name. Mm Mm-hmm. So 20 years after her relationship with Picasso, she wrote memoirs of their life together. Okay. Um, By then, Picasso was the most famous artist of his age, and the publication of Olivier's memoirs carried commercial potential. She was like, let's cash in on this. Mm -hmm. So the memoir, which was entitled Picasso and His Friends, was published in 1930 in serialized form in the Belgian daily La Soie, despite Picasso's strong opposition. Uh, He hired lawyers to prevent the publication of the series, and only six articles were published. But the payment she received helped her to improve her lifestyle somewhat, but she spent it quickly. So she eventually died at 89 after writing to Picasso to get an allowance from him after agreeing to never write about him again. Wow. Yeah. So that's Fernand. Oof. Also, the Rose Period. Remember in my last one, I was talking about boy and horse, naked boy with the horse. Yeah. That's a Rose Period. That's okay. called a uh, boy leading a horse. FYI. Uh, By 1905, Picasso became a favorite of American art collectors Leo and Gertrude Stein. Uh, Their older brother, Michael Stein, and his wife, Sarah, also became collectors of his work, and Gertrude Stein became Picasso's principal patron. Okay. She acquired his drawings and paintings and exhibited them in her informal salon at her home in Mm -hmm. Paris. And this is also where he met Matisse. I mentioned that in the Matisse Mm -hmm. episode. 
Um, the Steins introduced him to American art collectors, the Cone Sisters. I mentioned them before, too. Uh, they also began to acquire Picasso and Matisse's paintings, and eventually Leo Stein moved to Italy. Michael and Sarah Stein became patrons of Matisse, while Gertrude continued to collect Picasso. Uh, he made a portrait of her, now in the Met. It's a very famous portrait of okay. her. Um, and when someone commented that uh, Gertrude did not look like her portrait, uh, Picasso replied, she will. <laughs> Ooh. <laughs> yeah. Yes. Because it's not a flattering portrait. Her face is very flat. Her nose is very wide. Um, it, it, she looks very, like, stilted. Um, her face is all, like, one kind of, like, beigey brown color. It's not a flattering oh. portrait. So the fact that he was like, she will. Like, I'm just... I'm just being real about Ugh. the aging of women, especially lesbians. You know what I mean? Like he was yeah. just being an asshole. Um, he was just being like a f- fly by night artist and people love that. Oh, Picasso, you're so witty. <laughs> so in 1907, Picasso joined an art gallery that had recently been opened in Paris by Daniel Henry Conweiler. So Conweiler, you might uh, recognize, um, he was a German art historian and art collector who became one of the premier French art dealers of the 20th century. You don't know him from that. You know him from his portrait called A Portrait of Daniel Henry Conweiler by Picasso, which was one of like the like cubist paintings. Okay. It doesn't even look like a human person. It's a lot of browns and golds and whites. I'll post it. Um, but that was like the premier piece of cubist art that kind of all of cubism kind of came from. Okay. Um, so he was among the first champions of Pablo Picasso, Georges Braque, and the cubism that they jointly developed. So cubism, and I'll talk about this in a second, but the two main artists of cubism were Picasso and Georges Braque. Mm-hmm. So Picasso's African-influenced period. So it used to be called his primitivism period, okay. which we do not use primitive anymore. That's, All right. Don't use it. Um, that was only two years, 1907 to 1909, and it began with his painting, uh, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon. Yes. Yes. This is in the MoMA. Uh, Picasso painted this composition in a style inspired by Iberian sculpture, uh, but repainted the faces of the two figures on the right after being powerfully impressed by African artifacts he saw in June 1907 in the Ethnographic Museum at Palais de Trocadero. When he displayed the paintings uh, to acquaintances in his studio later that year, the nearly universal reaction was shock and revulsion. Matisse angrily dis- dismissed the work as a hoax. Uh, Picasso did not exhibit Les Demoiselles publicly until 1916 because it, he got such a bad reaction. Uh, formal ideas developed during this period lead directly into the Cubist period that follows. It was kind of an early Cubist work. Um, the work, part of the permanent collection of the MoMA, portrays five nude female sex workers in a brothel on Carrier de Avignon, Avignon Street in Barcelona. Each figure is depicted in disconcertingly confrontational matter, and none is conventionally feminine. The women appear slightly menacing and are rendered with angular and disjointed body shapes. The three figures on the left exhibit facial features in the Iberian style of Picasso's native Spain. So the Iberian people were like the ancient people Mm -hmm. of the Iberian Peninsula. Um, While the two on the right are shown with African mask-like features. Um, The racial primitivism evoked in these masks, according to Picasso, moved him to, quote, liberate an utterly original artistic style of compelling, even savage force. So this idea of the savage and this primitivism was something that um, it kind of comes from this uh, like noble savage idea. Like once an imperialist country comes in and conquers another country, Mm -hmm. then it moves from, we need to like squash these horrible savages to Oh, look at how beautiful they are because now they're considered non-threatening anymore. So this happened in the American West Mm -hmm. and this definitely happened with, um, uh, England and, you know, Africa, especially, but also India and other parts of the East. So this early 20th century time period where these people have been quote unquote conquered, Mm -hmm. this is where this idea of primitivism in art really starts to like take off. And this is also Gauguin was another Mm -hmm. proponent of this. Wasn't, uh, the demoiselles of Avignon, like a cover of somebody else's painting of the same name. It is. Um, I don't know. I don't think so. I do know that it's, uh, this idea of like, um, nude women, like congregating together and having like a dynamic pose was, um, often used, you see that a lot in like Greek mythological mm-hmm. paintings. 
um, of like nymphs and that kind of thing. So I think the idea was that he was looking back toward that. Okay. But I don't know if there was like a, a root painting. For some reason, Medigliani is sticking in my head of oh, something yeah. with the same name. Um, he may have been looking at some Medigliani because okay. that he had the same kind of quality, like that flat body mm-hmm. and weird contours and like very um, like emotionless faces, yeah. like mask-like faces. Yeah, for sure. Um, so yeah. So in this adaptation of primitivism and abandonment of perspective in favor of a flat two-dimensional picture plane, so it's very flat, uh, Picasso makes a radical departure from traditional European painting, and this was also why it was so shocking to a lot of people. Right. Um, so this proto-Cubist work is widely considered to be seminal in the early development of both Cubism and modern art. And I wrote a lot about it because um, my master's thesis was about like mask and masking. Right. So that paper that I was like my my first paper about it, I wrote a lot about Demoiselles de Avignon. And then I remember I went to the MoMA, like I was on a trip doing something uh, else. You just I was just, just at the MoMA, by. Mm. you know. And I turned the corner and there was Demoiselles. And I literally like stopped in my tracks. I was like, oh my God, because I wasn't expecting it. Yeah. And I had forgotten that it was at the MoMA. Yeah. And it's huge. It's really, really mm-hmm. big. Um, so it was cool. It was cool to see. There's a lot of like weird stuff connected with it and a lot of things you could really, I mean, I could do like an entire episode on Demoiselles, but I won't. <laughs> so analytical cubism. 1909 to 1912 is a style of painting Picasso developed with Georgia Brock. So this is the beginning of cubism, cubism. Um, They used monochrome brownish and neutral colors, and both artists took apart objects and analyzed them in terms of their shapes. Picasso and Brock's paintings at this time shared many similarities. Actually, a lot of times from like 50 paces, you can't tell the difference between the two styles. Uh, in 1911, Picasso was arrested and questioned about the theft of the Mona Lisa from the Louvre. Ooh, yes. Yes. This is a little known thing. Like a lot of people <laughs> don't know that this happened. Suspicion for the crime had initially fallen upon the poet uh, Guillaume Apollinaire due to his links to uh, Gary Piret, an artist with the history of thefts from the gallery. Uh, Apollinaire in turn implicated his close friend Picasso. He was like, no way is the Spanish guy um, <laughs> who had also purchased stolen artworks from the artist in the past. And afraid of a conviction that could result in his deportation to Spain, Picasso denied having ever met Apollinaire. So both were later cleared of any involvement in the painting's disappearance. So cubism, just to get back to cubism, the whole point of cubism was taking um, Matisse's idea of seeing in the three dimensions. So everything's either a cone or a... um, Cylinder. Cylinder, thank you. I couldn't think of the word. Or a sphere. Mm -hmm. So uh, I want to see things in three dimensions, said Matisse, and I'm going to paint things in the way of three dimensions. And Picasso and Brock were like, I got you one better. You know what's better than a cone? Flat. Cube. Cube. (laughs) (laughs) A cube. Uh, So what the idea of cubism is, is taking a three-dimensional object like a human person and taking every side of them and then exploding it onto a two-dimensional surface. Okay. So that's what why cubism looks so insane. <laughs> and so just like a bunch of little squares is because the idea was that you were going to kind of digit, almost like digitize okay. the entirety of the three dimensions and then put it on and a two-dimensional it. picture paint. Mm-hmm. Exactly. So instead of tricking the eye, like Matisse was trying to do, to make you believe that you were like looking through a window and seeing an orange. Um, he was like, I'm just going to put the orange just like you would unpeel an orange and stick it on a two. Like the Mercator projection of a, of the globe. Exactly. Exactly. Exactly like that. You got it. You just, ex- you just explained cubism better than I could. So synthetic cubism, which happened after that 1912 to 1919 was a further development of the genre of cubism in which cut paper fragments Often wallpaper or portions of newspaper pages were pasted into compositions marking the first use of collage in fine art. Ugh, what a nightmare to conserve. Oh, <laughs> such a nightmare. Could you even imagine? Because uh, just FYI, everybody, newspapers are a nightmare to conserve because they have what we call, say it with me, Julia, inherent vice. Oh, well, but yeah. yeah. Inherent vice, which is acid. We're both right. (laughs) But also adhesives. But also adhesives. Just our nightmare. Everything. So anyway, uh, between 1915 and 1917, Picasso began a series of paintings depicting highly geometric and minimalist cubist objects, consisting of either a pipe or a guitar or a glass with an occasional element of collage. He said, quote, we need a new name to designate them, wrote Picasso to Gertrude Stein. Maurice Reynal suggested crystal cubism, 
Uh, These little gems may have been produced by Picasso in response to critics who had claimed his defection from the movement through his experimentation with classism within the so-called return to order following the war. So after World War I, um, because the whole world was in upheaval, a lot of people were looking for like comforting things. So they're like, ah, you know, it was great before the war, (laughs) long before the war. So it's classical art. So that was like a lot of artists went back to that. And that that's where neoclassicism came from. So at the outbreak of World War I in August 1914, Picasso was living in Avignon, and he was able to continue painting uninterrupted, unlike his French comrades, uh, who were mobilized for the war. And towards the end of World War I, Picasso became involved with Sergei Delegev's uh, Ballet Russes, just like mm-hmm. Matisse did. And in the summer of 1918, Picasso married Olga Koklova, a ballerina with Sergei Delegev's troupe, for whom Picasso was designing a ballet, which was Eric Satie's parade in Rome. Uh, after returning from his honeymoon and in need of money, Picasso started his exclusive relationship with the French du- Jewish art dealer, Paul Rosenberg. Okay. And as part of his first duties, Rosenberg agreed to rent the couple an apartment in Paris at his own expense, which was located next to his own house. <laughs> Convenient. Uh-huh. Uh, this was the start of a deep brother-like friendship between the two very different men that would last until the outbreak of World War II. Uh, Kokolova introduced Picasso to high society, formal dinner parties, and other dimensions of the life of the rich in 1920s Paris. Mm-hmm. Um, they had a son, Paolo Picasso, who would grow up to be a motorcycle racer and chauffeur to his father. So this is uh, Picasso's first child. Okay. So uh, Koklova's insistence on social propriety clashed with Picasso's bohemian tendencies. and The two lived in a state of constant conflict. Um, in 1927, Picasso met 17-year-old Marie-Therese Walter and began a secret affair with her. He <sighs> was 45. Okay. Uh, All he, right. Yeah. Well, settle in, because he does this a lot. Uh, He kept her a secret from his wife until 1935, when Marie became pregnant with their daughter, Maya. So Picasso's marriage to Kuklova ended in separation rather than divorce, as French law required an even division of property in the case of divorce, and Picasso did not want Kuklova to have half his wealth. Uh, The two remained legally married until Kuklova's death in 1955. Oh. But she got out of there relatively unscathed. Okay. The, The rest of his women... Did she get some stuff? Uh, I think she what she did when she found out that his uh, 17-year-old uh, <laughs> mistress. mistress was pregnant, she was like, and to the south of France, and grabbed her son, and they just moved down there, and Bye. he just... Au revoir. Yeah, au revoir. So we'll talk about the rest of his women in a second. But So during the 1930s, the Minotaur replaced the Harlequin as a common motif in his work. Uh-huh. Uh, his use of the Minotaur came partly from his contact with the Surrealists, who often used it as their symbol, and it appears in Picasso's Guernica. So the yes. Minotaur mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Picasso's mistress, Marie-Therese Walter, are heavily featured in the celebrated uh, Villard Suite of Etchings. And arguably Picasso's most famous work is his depiction of the German bombing of Guernica during the Spanish Civil War, known as... Guernica. Guernica. Uh, this large canvas embodies for many the inhumanity, brutality, and hopelessness of war. Um, Picasso's Guernica is uh, featured heavily in... Simon Shama's power of art. He talks very deeply about the um, symbolism in the painting. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about the historical context by which the painting is painted. Again, I could spend an entire episode yeah. on Guernica, but uh, I'll just kind of give like a quick thing about it. Um, so the painting was created in response to the bombings of Guernica, a Basque country town in Northern Spain by Nazi Germany and Italian warplanes at the request of the Spanish nationalists. Franco. Franco. Yes. Asked to explain its symbolism, Picasso said, quote, it isn't up to the painter to define the symbols. Otherwise, it would be better if he wrote them out in so many words. The public who looks at the picture must interpret the symbols as they understand them. Uh, Guernica was exhibited in July 1937 at the Spanish Pavilion at the Paris International Exposition and then became the centerpiece of an exhibition of 118 works by Picasso, Matisse, Brach, and uh, Henri Lorenz that toured Scandinavia and England. Uh, after the victory of Francisco Franco in Spain, the painting was sent to the United States to raise funds and support for Spanish refugees. And until 1981, it was entrusted to MoMA in New York City, oh. as it was Picasso's expressed desire that the painting should not be delivered to Spain until liberty and democracy had been established in the country. Okay. And I believe it's now in the Prado. I think, yeah. It's it's really freaking big. Mm-hmm. It's like a mural size, yes. would you say? It's yeah, very absolutely. gray, yes, grays it's very and dark. blacks and whites. Mm-hmm. And it just looks like a bunch of like shapes that 
if you like kind of drew the shapes over each other as like an artwork and then kind of just colored stuff in. Yeah. It's very layered. Mm-hmm. Um, the more you look at it, the, the more figures that you see and the more there's like um, a woman cradling like a dead baby. There's like a light bringer, like this image of a woman like swooping in through a window and she's got a candle. There's a minotaur. There's a horse that's dying. The a minotaur white horse. is really all I can remember. Yeah, the minotaur is like up in the corner and then there's a bull that's being gored or no, a bull is goring the horse. And there's like a man dying uh, like across the mm-hmm. center f- foreground. It's very like chaotic and yeah. it's a very like war, war heavy piece. And it's um, unusual for Picasso because mm-hmm. he was really like, I don't have anything to do with this war thing. Right. But then when he heard about what Franco was doing to his own people, mm-hmm. he really felt like he had to make a statement. And the only way he knew how was to paint things. Yeah. So um, I would say Guernica was like the only major artwork that he did that was actually like a protest piece. He also did like the nine lives of Franco or something like that, Mm -hmm. which was actually either a sketch or a, an etching um, of, it was kind of a satire of Franco and it was kind of making fun of him and his life and that kind of thing. But Guernica was definitely like his main piece and it Mm -hmm. made it, uh, it really made an impact at the time and continues to do so today. But if you want to learn more about it, power of art, Simon Shama. So good. So, while he was painting Guernica, the surrealist photographer and artist Dora Marr shot the photos of him working. Um, And she also introduced him to different photographic techniques at the time and is credited with Guernica's black and white color scheme. She was showing him photos, her photos. She was an artist in and of herself. Mm -hmm. And he was like, hmm, I really like this color scheme. So he went with that. Um, So at the same time, she is the principal model of Picasso who who often represents her in tears. Um, She herself produced several self-portraits entitled The Weeping Woman. And Mar met Picasso in 1936 at the Café de Dumago. Café de Dumago. That's where Hemingway would um, would hang out. Oh, okay. Yeah, I ate there. Was it good? Great. Oh, okay. All right. So the story of their first encounter, I love this so much. The story of their first encounter was told by the writer uh, Jean-Paul Crispel. Quote, the young woman's serious face lit up by a pale blue eyes, which looked all the paler because of her thick eyebrows, a sensitive, uneasy face with light and shade passing alternately over it. She kept driving a small pointed pen knife between her fingers into the wood of the table. Sometimes she missed and a drop of blood appeared between the roses embroidered on her black gloves. Picasso would ask Dora to give him the gloves and would lock them up in the showcase he kept for his mementos. So she basically, you know, like the, the play that game, play that the, game. The pe- you, well, we do it with a pencil. Yeah. Because we're not, insane sadists. <laughs> yeah we're not crazy sadists so she was kind of a wild child like uh-huh. she was like she was a cool girl she, she was, like emo yeah she was definitely emo she was very emo it's like whatever man i'm just gonna stab myself i don't even care i love blood uh <laughs> so um meanwhile picasso's much younger girlfriend marie is pregnant with his kid but he doesn't leave marie Mm -hmm. Uh, Marie Therese became jealous when Picasso fell in love with Dora Um, once she and Dora met accidentally in Picasso's studio when he was painting Guernica and I asked about this later in life Picasso remarked that he had been quite happy with the situation and that when they demanded that he choose between them he told them that they would have to fight it out themselves (sighs) at which point the two women began to wrestle Picasso described it as quote one of his choicest memories I know it's like (laughs) First of all, one, respect yourselves, ladies. Respect yourselves. Yeah. Right? But if a guy's like, you both figure it out. Then it's like, all right, we both decided. How about the answer is neither? Yeah. How about neither? Ugh. He's so gross. Anyway, Picasso, again, often portrayed Dora in his works of art as dark and in pain, usually like sobbing lots of big, like watery tears. Um, But he painted Marie Therese as just the opposite, blonde and bright. Uh, Marie never lived with Picasso and she was uh, just sent to live with their son um, where Picasso would occasionally stop by on weekends to visit. So, um, so Dora Mar, her liaison with Picasso who physically abused her. Oh, he physically abused all of the women that he was with. Oh. By the way. Um, it ended in 1943, although they met again episodically until 1946 until she finally was like, all right, that's enough. Um, in 1944, through the intermediary of Paul Ullard, uh, Dora Marr met Jacques Lacan, who took care of her nervous breakdown by administering her electroshocks, which, by the way, were forbidden at the time. Oh, so, okay. Picasso felt bad, and he bought her a house um, where she retired and lived alone. 
Um, she turned to the Catholic religion, met the painter Nic- uh, Nicholas de Stahl, who lived in the same oh, village. Okay, yeah. And turned to abstract painting. Um, she was a legit artist in her own right and uh, frequently exhibited. Um, she died in Paris in 1997 at age 89. Oh, wow. So, so she just went through some electric shock therapy and then Picasso and then, gave her a house. Yep. And Picasso then she found a, a nice husband and settled in. And, and she's still considered like a member of the surrealist movement, a surrealist photographer. She was a uh, muse of several artists. Okay. She's a good so artist she on a her happy own. Ending. Yeah, she had That's a happy good. ending for sure. Um, so during the second world war, Picasso remained in Paris while the Germans occupied the city. Picasso's artistic style did not fit in the Nazi ideal of art, so he did not exhibit during the time. Um, he was often harassed by the Gestapo, however. During one search of his apartment, an officer saw a photograph of the painting Guernica. Did you do that? The German asked Picasso. No, he replied. You did. <laughs> I know, right? <laughs> that's pretty good. I know, that's pretty good. That was pretty good. But he was friends with the Rosenbergs. He, and I think he was. Yeah, you're right. He was yeah, friends with the Rosenbergs. It's not. Yeah, I mean... Picasso was definitely like, and, and other artists would kind of poke fun at him or actually like kind of criticize him behind his back that he never really like picked a side. Okay. Um, he was never like, I would never say he went as far as being a Nazi sympathizer, mm-hmm. but I think he was mostly just kind of like, meh, you guys figure it out kind of thing. Like he didn't, he, he was too busy being self-obsessed to okay. really like look outwardly for too long. Yeah. He was like, well, I did Guernica. Like, Leave me alone, it's like guys. The Spanish are yeah. I did they're a not major. In, they're thing. not involved in this. Yeah, exactly. Oh, he's such an asshole. Okay, so retreating into a studio, he continued to paint, producing works such as the Still Life with Guitar and the Charnel House. Although the Germans outlawed bronze casting in Paris, Picasso continued regardless, using bronze smuggled to him by the French resistance. What? I wonder why. I don't know. I think um, they used bronze. You know, like it was like um, what I'm looking for. Uh, like rations. I think okay. they use bronze for something huh. and like infrastructure or whatever, whatever, or they were just doing it because they were, yeah, you know, they're the Nazis. Um, so around this time, Picasso wrote poetry as an alternative outlet. So, Oh yeah. So we have oh, some of that. Yep. Oh yeah. Between 1935 <laughs> and 1959, he wrote over 300 poems. Great. Uh, largely untitled except for a date and sometimes the location of where it was written. These works are, gustatory, erotic, and at times scatological, as were his two full-length plays called Desire Caught by the Tail and The Four Little Girls. Yeah. In 1944, after the liberation of Paris, Picasso, then 63 years old, began a romantic relationship with a young art student named Francois Gillot. She was 40 years younger than he was. Uh, Picasso had grown tired of his mistress, Dora Mar. Picasso and Gillot began to live together. Eventually, they had two children, Claude Picasso, born in 1947, and Paloma Picasso, born in 1949. We've, we've heard of her. Yes, Paloma Picasso was a, um, is, I should say, she's still alive, um, is a fashion designer and a perfumier. Uh, my mom wears Paloma, her perfume. It's very nice. It's very oriental. It's like a lot of heady, powdery scents. It's good. Um, she's fine. Like Paloma's fine. She's, she's very rich. <laughs> um, in her 1964 book, life with Picasso, Gillot describes his abusive treatment and myriad infidelities, which led her to leave him taking the children with her. This was a severe blow to Picasso. Oh, that's a shame. Uh, Picasso had affairs with women of an even greater age disparity than his and Gillot's. Uh, while still involved with Gillot in 1951, Picasso had a six week affair with Genevieve Laporte, who was four years younger than Gillot. By his 70s, many paintings, ink drawings, and prints have as their theme an old, grotesque dwarf as the doting lover of a beautiful young model. Oh. Huh. Yeah. Do you think his conscience was getting... <laughs> uh, maybe, because he was... I mean, you know, he was a handsome guy once upon a time, but yeah. now he looks... He, like, officially looks like a grandpa. Yeah. Um, so, ew. Uh, Jacqueline Roque worked at the Medora Pottery and... On the French Riviera, uh, where Picasso made and painted ceramics. So Picasso eventually moved to the French Riviera and like okay. the south of France, and like that's for where his health, huh? For his health, for his health. Yes, you know because so delicate. Um, there's a, a lot of like uh, images of him in those uh, what are they called the the French um, striped shirts, the bateau, bateau shirts. Mm-hmm. Yes, 
like you know with his pants rolled up like splashing in the surf living that's his what i'm life. picturing when i think of him yes with like a jaunty bandana yes tying around his head. neck yes mm-hmm. yeah that's definitely like the image of late picasso mm-hmm. um so this woman jacqueline roque became his lover um and then she became his second wife in 1961 because uh, his first wife finally died because his first wife finally died. Exactly. She died in 1955. Exactly. So the two were together for the remainder of Picasso's life. Um, his marriage to Roque was also a means of revenge against Gillot. With Picasso's encouragement, Gillot had divorced her then husband, Luc Simon, with the plan to marry Picasso to secure the rights of her children as Picasso's legitimate heirs. Ooh. Picasso had already secretly married Roque after Gillot had filed for divorce. That sucks. I know. He was a dick. A cazzo, if you will. Uh, his strained relationship with Claude and Pilomo was never healed. By this time, Picasso had constructed a huge Gothic home and could afford large villas in the south of France. He was an international celebrity which often, with often as much interest in his personal life as his art. Mm-hmm. So he became kind of a... Tabloid. You know, yeah, like mm-hmm. a... He was in the, the tabloids a lot. So um, in addition to his artistic accomplishments, Picasso made a few film appearances as well, always as himself, okay. including a cameo in Jean Cocteau's uh, Testament of Orpheus in 1960. Uh, in 1955, he helped make the film uh, The Mystery of Picasso, directed by Henri-Georges Clouseau. He was commissioned to make a maquette for a huge 50-foot-high public sculpture to be built in Chicago, uh, known usually as the Chicago Picasso. He approached the project with a great deal of enthusiasm, designing a sculpture which was ambiguous and somewhat controversial. What the figure represents is not known. It could be a bird, a horse, a woman, or a totally abstract shape. Uh, The sculpture, one of the most recognizable landmarks in downtown Chicago, was unveiled in 1967, and Picasso refused to be paid the $100,000 for it, donating it to the people of the city. Okay. So that was nice. That was nice. So um, this next paragraph I'm going to read. And then I'm going to say what I think about it. Okay. Okay, here we go. I'll sit silently. (laughs) Thank you. Picasso's final works were a mixture of styles, his means of expression in constant flux until the end of his life. Devoting his full energies to his work, Picasso became more daring, his works more colorful and expressive. And from 1968 to 1971, he produced a torrent of paintings and hundreds of copper plate etchings. At the time, these works were dismissed by most as pornographic fantasies of an impotent old man or the slapdash works of an artist who has passed his prime. Only later, after Picasso's death, when the rest of the art world had moved on from abstract expressionism, did the critical community come to see the late works of Picasso as prefiguring neo-expressionism. What I think of that is that is a big, old hunk of baloney. Spanish baloney. Jamon, <laughs> if you will. Because, <laughs> this is what I think. Okay. Picasso's last great work was Guernica. Mm-hmm. Ever like after that, he was kind of in love with his own idea of celebrity. I'm a famous artist. I'm a, he would like sketch, like basically a smiley face, like a little like stick figure or Mm -hmm. whatever, sign it and then sell it. Yeah. So he was already like, I could do, I could do whatever Mm -hmm. and make a ton of money and it doesn't even matter anymore. Art wasn't art anymore for him. It was just that it was just part of his whole like, right. Cult of personality. Kind of like James Patterson. Kind of like James Patterson. I'm going to say right now. Pablo Picasso was the James Patterson of art between 1968 and 1971. <laughs> and a lot of art and a lot of art historians think this too, that he kind of, I mean, he was still producing at like an incredible rate, all these drawings and sculptures and things. There's tons of work by him mm-hmm. and it's all out there. Every art museum has a little ceramic chicken or like a little drawing of a nude woman with giant breasts. Like everybody has those yeah. and they're sold on the market all the time. And it sells because it's Picasso's name, not because it has any artistic merit. So my personal opinion is his last great work was Guernica. And then he just kind of bought into his own bullshit. Well, it was okay. So I think when most people think of Picasso, we've been ingrained like the, you know, the sideways face. Mm-hmm. Here's the eye up here and the other eyes down here. Yeah. Not symmetrical. And maybe the mouth's over here. So why why is that what we think of when we think of Picasso? Um, because that was when he was in his younger years. That was like what was the most impactful in the art world. Okay. And what he was most famous for at the time. His like cubism, synthetic cubism, that whole mm-hmm. period. Um, and that's stuff like Portrait of Daniel Henry Conweiler became okay. like the the jumping off point for that. So he did 
like um, Marie Therese was his model for Girl Before a Mirror, which is the two women looking at each other. I'll post these pictures. Mm-hmm. La Rev, The Dream, which is, again, that's um, that's Marie Therese, this blonde woman, like dreaming on a chair. And they're very um, super colorful and they're really impactful and they were they were new and different at the mm-hmm. time. And so that's why we know him for that stuff. Um, but his work went through like huge changes. Right. Um, but those were, I think like the ones that really stuck at everybody's craw because okay. it was such a different so thing. So they weren't mad anymore about stuff like that. They no, they weren't burn. mad. They, no, they, they were they like, got over. Oh, <laughs> they're so amazing. Oh my God. Picasso, we love you. Um, so Picasso died. He's right. dead by the way. P.S. Uh, he died on April 8th, 1973 in Mougans, France from pulmonary edema and heart failure while he and his wife, Jacqueline entertained friends for dinner. Oof. He was interred near Aix-en-Provence. Uh, Jacqueline Roque prevented his children, Claude and Paloma, from attending the funeral. <gasps> oh, yeah. Jackie. Yeah. Well, devastated and lonely after the death of Picasso, Jacqueline Roque killed herself by gunshot in 1986 when she was 59 years old. Oh. Marie, you remember Marie Therese? Yeah, I remember Marie. Uh, who always in vain hoped to one day reunite with Picasso and have him finally marry her, hung herself four years after his death. Ah. Oh. Come on. I know. He wasn't that great. No, he was not that great. He was not. I can tell you that right now. And if they were in front of me, I'd tell them that. And you know, their friends were like, all their girlfriends were like, honey, honey, there are so many nice guys out there. I can introduce you to like 50 artists. They are a dime a dozen. Why do you want to go with that short, fat, bald guy? Come on. You're beautiful. You can do better than that. Yeah. So, in 1973, Gilo was appointed as the art director of the scholarly journal Virginia Woolf Quarterly. So, this is his ex-girlfriend, Gilo. Okay. She did not kill herself, by the way. So, Great. in 1976, she was made a member of the board of the Department of Fine Arts at the University of Southern California. She held summer courses there and took on organizational responsibilities until 1983. Throughout the 1980s and 1990s, she designed costumes, stage sets, and masks for pro- productions at the Guggenheim in New York. She was awarded a Chevalier de la... Um, Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur. I'm going to let you read that. Chevalier de la Légion d'Honneur. In 1990, uh, she married the vaccine pioneer Jonas Salk later in life. Oh, Isn't that amazing? What? Yeah. So she was the girlfriend of Pablo Picasso. And the wife of the Jonas wife Salk. wife of Jonas Salk. She's still alive. Oh. She most recently exhibited her work in 2015. Wow. She's still producing art. Good for her. Good for her. So, quick back to Picasso. He was exceptionally prolific throughout his long lifetime. The total number of artworks he produced have been estimated at 50,000. I know. So we probably have a Picasso. I have a Picasso. (laughs) I'm sitting on one right now. Uh, comprising 1,885 paintings, 1,228 sculptures, 2,880 ceramics, roughly 12,000 drawings, many thousands of prints, and numerous tapestries and rugs. He even went into textiles at some point. Okay. So his most famous works, as I mentioned previously, Les Demoiselles d'Avignon, Portrait of Daniel Henry Conweiler, Girl Before a Mirror, La Reve, Guernica, and The Weeping Woman. And Dude with a Guitar. And Dude with a Guitar. I will post all these pictures <laughs> on Twitter. So that I'm going to, I'm going to take a wow. break on, uh, the art stuff. Okay. But I did get a message, by the way, Mara, our uh-huh. future, uh, teammate for yeah. our, uh, for the geek, for the, the geek bowl, geek bowl of geeks, bowl of geeks, Mara sent me a message on Facebook and she was like, I got a question right about art the other day. Thanks to you. Ooh. And I was like, yay, I'm so glad. Yay. So if only one person learns more about art than yeah, I've done my job. Yeah, we got another message from someone that, that got an art question right because yes. of you. Yes, we did. So, yeah, we did. So, good. I'm glad you guys are liking that. So, my quiz today is called Un Cuestionaria Sobre España, a quiz about Spain. It will be okay. entirely in Spanish. So, <laughs> I'm in the France Mini League and okay, Murder yeah. League and getting my ass kicked well it, didn't you it see a hard mini league yeah well did you see that the guy who's number one is french lives in france and went to like the university of france <laughs> like, <laughs> like i think you have to be like natively it's french nuts there was one question this past week that only two percent of people got right that's crazy I'm not, what so great i don't know i thought i knew stuff about france apparently i don't I know nothing about Spain, so lay it on me. Maybe you know more about Spain than France. You know I'd be surprised. Okay, here we go. 
Número uno. Two Spanish clubs have been ranked as the world's two richest football clubs since the 2008-09 season. Can you name the cities that give them their home and their names? Número dos. Spain is also renowned for its lively festivals, including the running of the bulls in Pamploma, which is known as San Fermín, and the nationwide carnival, as well as a festival in Buñol known as Tomatina, where participants battle with what? Número tres. Nobody expects it. The Spanish Inquisition started in 1478, but what year was it finally abolished? Was it A, 1494, B, 1659, C, 1834, or D, 1975? Número cuatro. You're our water gale. What body of water borders Spain to the north? Número cinco. Written in 1605 by Miguel Cervantes, this book was voted the most meaningful book of all time in 2002 by a panel of 100 top authors, including Salman Rushdie, Norman Mailer, Doris Lessing, and Coroles Fuentes. Name that book. Número seis. Salt, fat, acid, heat may have steered you wrong on this. Spain is the actual world leader in production of what delicious food lube? Número siete. Who is the first Spanish actor to win an Oscar? I'll give you a hint. He wore a cute bob in a Coen Brothers joint, was the Biscard villain in Skyfall, and is married to the equally beautiful and Spanish Penelope Cruz. Numero ocho. He's not magical and he doesn't fly, but he does leave you a gift. The mythical mouse Ratonchito Perez is the Spanish equivalent to what American sprite? Numero nueve. True or false, Spain did not participate in either the First or the Second World War. And numero dos, what British colony has a one-kilometer border with Spain? Give you a minute to think about it. Uno minuto, and we'll be right back with answers. is infinitely better than your French. I mean, I should just stop speaking French. I should just, we should just edit it so that all of the French words that I say is just you. Like just I go in. over later on. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, say I mean, I'm like, Aix-en-Provence. <laughs> Aix-en-Provence. <laughs> I think I'm going to have you just insert that Chevalier de la. <laughs> I'm going to just have you do that. But anyway, here we go. Right. Question, question okay. number one. <clears throat> España. España. Two Spanish clubs have been ranked as the world's two richest football clubs since the 2008-2009 season. Can you name the cities that give them their home and their names? You got Real Madrid. Yes. Uh, I think in Barcelona. Yes, exactly. FC Barcelona. Uh, the Real Madrid has clung to the top of the Del Watt Football Money League since 2004 and 2005. They boast an annual revenue of $650 million and a brand value of $3.3 billion with a B. Bitter rivals Barcelona ranked third on the list with a value of two point six billion. Oh, a measly two point six billion. Question number two: Spain is also renowned for its lively festivals, including the running of the bulls in Pamplona, which is known as San Fermín, and the nationwide carnival, as well as a festival in Buñol known as Tomatina, where participants battle with what? Tomatoes. Tomatoes. So. This is very weird. It started the last Wednesday of August in 1945 when some young people spent the time in the town square to attend the Giants and Big Heads figures parade. Something else. Oh. <laughs> They're like, Giants and Big Heads, bring them out. 
Uh, so the young boys decided to take part in a parade with musicians, giants, and big head figures. Apparently they were like, let's get in this. So the energy of jovialities caused one participant's big head to fall off. Oh. The participant flew into a fit of rage and began hitting everything in his path. There was a market stall of vegetables that fell victim to the fury of the <gasps> crowd. People started to pelt each other with tomatoes until the local forces ended that fruit battle because the tomato was a fruit. <laughs> the following year, some young people engaged in a pre-planned quarrel and brought their own tomatoes from home. Although the police broke it up, they began the early tradition. In the following years, the young boy's example has unwittingly made history. Oh, is that wonderful? So it doesn't that mean anything. Fun. It was just one day someone got mad and started throwing tomatoes and they were like, this is a great idea. <laughs> Okay, question number three. Nobody expects it. The Spanish Inquisition started in 1478, but what year was it finally abolished? Was it A, 1494, B, 1659, C, 1834, or D, 1975? I'm going to... I'm feeling strong okay. about C. C, 1834. You are absolutely correct. Okay. The Spanish Inquisition, which aimed at converting non-Christians to Christian Catholicism, processed some 350,000 people, of whom at least 10% were executed, most famously by being burned at the stake. It's not really efficient. No, it's not. You got to wait. There's a lot of There's screaming. A lot of <laughs> the smell. Which might be delicious. I mean, I don't know. No. I don't know. Oh, no. Julia, don't, do not, do not react like that. You don't know if the smell of human flesh burning wouldn't be delicious. Cut this out. <laughs> no, no, we're leaving this in. Okay. I'm going to create another Twitter poll. <laughs> no, I won't. That's terrible. That's terrible. You're going to get written up. I am. I'm going to get Twitter gonna written get blocked. Up. Twitter is going to <laughs> shut me down. Okay. <laughs> Question number four. You're our water gal. What body of water borders Spain to the north? Do you want me to give you a hint? Yeah, give me a hint. Okay, it is an arm of the Atlantic Ocean. Uh-huh. Um, You're going to draw it out? I know. I know France so much better. Uh, I will tell Here's another hint. It borders the west coast of France. The English Channel. No, it's the Bay of Biscay. Ugh. So it borders the west coast of France and the north coast of Spain. Okay. Question number five. Written in 1605 by Miguel Cervantes, the book was voted the most meaningful book of all time in 2002 by a panel of 100 top authors. Name that book. Don Quixote. Don Quixote. Don Quixote tells the tale of the eponymous knight and his squire, Sancho Panza. It is considered to be the first modern novel. Uh, both Don Quixote and Sancho Panza are national heroes in Spain, and their statues can be found everywhere. Uh, <laughs> apparently, the one at Plaza de España in Madrid is especially popular among tourists. They probably are rubbing some. Oh, yeah. Like, oh, that's all sorts one of thing parts. we discovered when we were over in the UK was, like, every every town has, like, a famous statue, and every one of them, you rub the statue in a different spot. Mm. Some of them, you rub his toe. One of them, you rub his nose. Some of them, you rub his crotch. Yeah, you know. I mean, whatever, man. It's for good luck. Good luck. Did you have good luck? I guess so. All I right, made good. it back in one piece. Yeah, there you go. Question number six. Salt, fat, acid, heat may have steered you wrong on this. Spain is the actual world leader in production Don't of what? <laughs> no, Don't you say, say it. it. Delicious it. food lube. Delicious food lube. <laughs> <laughs> I couldn't say oil. <laughs> it's olive oil. Yes, yes it's olive oil. <laughs> More- Sorry, honey. Can you pass me that bottle of food lube? <laughs> <laughs> no. Delicious. From the cabinet. Delicious. From the cabinet. <laughs> to your left. The other left. Food lube, I'm talking about. More than 1.5 million tons, and almost all of it comes from the southern region of Andalusia. Uh, Spanish wine is also a noted product. Spain is the second largest producer in the world, only after Italy, making 4.6 million metric tons in 2015. I personally am a fan of Spanish wine. I really like it. Vino Verde? Wine? We're yeah. talking about wine now? Yeah. I thought we well, were talking about food lube. Food lube, they are the they're the leader. Okay. They produce more than 1.5 million tons. Okay. They also, Spain is the second largest producer of wine in the world. Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. Yeah. I missed that part. I was thinking about... You were thinking about food lube? Um, <laughs> what, okay, so I've only actually watched one episode of Salt, Fat, Acid, Heat oh, okay. so far, but I watched the fat one. Of course. Where they talked about the olive oil. And I liked when they showed you how they... 
harvested the olives from this one from this one like mountainside mm-hmm. in Italy. So they like these trees grow on this one special part and they're the best flavor and whatever. So they have a big net on the whole ground that covers the whole olive orchard. And so then they shake the trees and get all the olives off of mm-hmm. it. And then they get underneath the net and like walk down the hill and like push <laughs> it with their hands exactly. so that they're the they're how the olives get down to the bottom of the hill. And it was I was like, I want to go do that. Yeah. It let's looks get, like fun. Let's get on a plane. I want I'll go volunteer. Olive to, oil tourism. To roll some <laughs> roll some olive net down a hill. Holy moly. I mean Samin Nazarat seemed like she was having a great time. Yeah. So let's do it. <laughs> we'll have the we'll have the podcast pay for us to go. <laughs> We'll report back. Yeah, okay. Okay, question number seven. Who's the first Spanish actor to win an Oscar? I'll give you a hint. He wore a cute bob and a Coen Brothers joint, was the Biscard villain in Skyfall, and is married to the equally beautiful in Spanish Penelope Cruz. This is Javier Bardem. It is Javier Bardem. I did not write anything more about that. I think he won the uh, Oscar for um, No Country for Old Men. Yeah. I'm almost positive. Anton Chigurh. Yes, that's a great movie. His voice is so deep and rich. I don't think it's a great movie at all. Well, I mean, it's great in that, you know, you say, wow, that's a great movie, but you wouldn't watch it again. You know what I mean? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Question number eight. He's not magical and he doesn't fly, but he does leave you a gift. The mythical mouse Ratoncito Perez is the Spanish equivalent to what American Sprite? Santa Claus? No, it's the Tooth Fairy. The Tooth Fairy. So, uh, Mr. Perez, they have, a, a mouse. they have a mouse. Yes. Okay. Uh, which makes sense. I mean, he crawls up and leaves you a coin. Yeah. Takes your tooth. Sure. I don't know what he does with it. It didn't say. <laughs> uh, question number nine. True or false, Spain did not participate in either the First or the Second World War. I'm going to say true. It is true. Um, although their official status was, quote, non-belligerent, which is actually not a recognizable <laughs> thing by international law <laughs> during World War II, um, Spain's leaders were ideologically aligned with Germany and Italy, and many Spanish citizens were exiled to France to fight against the Axis powers. And finally, question number 10, what British colony has a one-kilometer border with Spain? Is it Gibraltar? It is Gibraltar. Um, it's a small colony that is considered part of Britain, but is located on the southern tip of Spain. Uh, Gibraltar is most famous for its rock, not Dwayne, uh, which is inhabited by Barbary apes. It is said that the British will only leave the rock of Gibraltar when its apes do. <gasps> so, wow. They're not going anywhere. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, so that was my quiz on Picasso and my, I mean, that was my topic on Picasso and my quiz on Spain. Wonderful. Espana, if you will. Yeah. Wonderful. If you um, have missed any of Lauren's p- art episodes um you can go back and check them out uh pretty much wherever you listen to podcasts so if a friend asks you how to listen to us you tell them um itunes or apple podcasts google play stitcher or a podcast app because someone told me it's not cool to to name what apps you could listen to us on who told you that people that listen to podcasts all the time say nobody actually says that um well we do (laughs) Also, if you want to get in touch with us and tell us that it, whether or not you appreciate us telling where all of the apps are, you can email us at misinfopod at gmail.com. You can tweet at us at misinfopod where I may or may not be putting that poll. And you can go to our Facebook page, page misinformation, call in a trivia podcast. Um, and you can uh, hit us up on our website, www.misinfopod.com. Yeah, so... Great. Thanks for listening, everybody. And we'll catch you next time. time. Bye. Bye.